In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we needed to write as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Over the decades, the Walt Disney Company has embarked on many projects that never quite came to fruition, and one of those famous endeavors that has rarely been explored, so maybe it's not a famous endeavor, but I, in my world, it's pretty famous. It hasn't been explored in as much depth as Disney's intent to build a ski resort in the Mineral King Valley in the 1960s and 70s. So today on Notably Disney, I am joined by journalists and writers, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, authors of the new book, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalist, and the Ski Resort That Never Was. So I'm excited to talk with Greg and Catherine as they share what they uncovered in their new title, which was published by Roman and Littlefield. So welcome to the podcast, Greg and Catherine. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Well, I think I need to ask the obvious question, um, or maybe it's just obvious to me, but what, what factors contributed to you both wanting to explore Mineral King and dedicate an entire book to Disney's involvement? This is a, you know, uh, it's it's famous for those of us who love Disney history, but it's, but for all intents and purposes, relatively niche and, and now looking many decades back, what what motivated you all to explore this? Yeah, exactly. So I had grown up, with Disney. I'm definitely a Disney person. So, you know, I had grown up with the parks, going to Walt Disney World with my family and, you know, watching the movies, watching the the shows, everything like that. So I certainly came in as, you know, a Disney, a Disney fan. And as I got older, I always enjoyed Disney history as well and really kind of got interested in especially the theme parks and anything to do with with Walt, of course, and and what he he wanted and what motivated him. And this story, the ski resort story, is one that, you know, I think like a lot of Disney people had heard a little bit about, like bits and pieces over the years. I thought I had read, you know, a very small mention here or there over the years. But um several years ago, Greg and I had gone to we were in San Francisco 
in 2018 and we had gone to the Walt Disney Family Museum. And I don't know if you've been there. It's a fantastic museum. Love it. Yeah. Isn't it great? <laughs> they have a giant, for anyone who hasn't been there, they, they have this giant timeline of Walt Disney's life that essentially I think wraps around basically the entire museum. And obviously as people who know and love Walt, he did a lot. So this timeline was very large. And there was one small mention talking about the fact that he had tried to build the ski resort in Mineral King, California. And on that mention, it also had mentioned his partner on the project was a man named Willie Schaeffler. And Greg and I live in Colorado. Willie Schaeffler was a famous Colorado ski coach for many years and, and ski champion very famous in Colorado circles and was the head ski coach at the University of Denver. And that was my alma mater. It is where Greg and I had both worked and met for many years. So we were like, oh, that's so weird. We had never heard that he was also involved in this. So it was like those, you know, combination of just being interested in this and then also finding out that there was this, you know, Colorado and DU connection and basically just kind of started digging into this and realizing that, you know, this was like a really huge comprehensive story that lasted basically almost two decades. And no one that we saw had, you know, written this comprehensive book about it. So we thought, you know, hey, let's basically try to do it. So it was really, the motivation was really just our personal interest. And, you know, curious journalist types basically just started digging, 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 realizing, you know, how big this story really was. Well, I guess in that spirit, it makes me wonder, you know, and you're obviously referencing your professions. I, I studied journalism in my undergrad. There's there's this notion of your, your explorers, your modern day explorers, you're trying to curate um, information. And, and I want to also um, explore it a little bit later in terms of the original interviews um, and, and new data that you collected. But once you decided you were on this journey, what was your process of procuring these antiquated materials and documents that perhaps had not been unearthed or or had been kind of long shadowed? Yeah, it was such a treasure hunt, you know, online and physically to go find. There's actually a whole archive at University of Southern Colorado or Southern California, excuse me, dedicated to Mineral King that was all donated by a woman named Jean Koch, who plays a big role in our book. So we traveled out there. We traveled to the Denver Public Library that has a lot of stuff about Willie Schaeffler, actually, and some other things. But then we came across, you know, I I feel like the desire to turn this into a book sort of coincided with finding all this great stuff. I mean, the more we found, the more we really thought, hey, this really could be a book, because then we came across a whole archive of Sierra Club documents and meeting minutes and oral histories of Sierra Club members who were involved in this and a you know, treasure trove of Disney annual reports where they mentioned this project and other things that we write about. So, and then we also went through like literally thousands of newspaper articles from the time, which was really interesting to see how it was being covered by journalists at the time this was happening and to kind of see the excitement when this was first announced, and then sort of the skepticism that started to creep in as this environmental fight started. So um, yeah, we just, you know, we just went down probably hundreds of, of rabbit holes and, and just kept finding really cool things. So it was, it was really fun, actually. At what point were you all uh, 
looking at securing the publisher, was that fairly early on in the process or was that more organic later? It felt a little more organic because I think at first we were like, you know, you know, first, can we do this? <laughs> can we do this? What can we? And of course, we're talking about obviously a long time ago. So, of course, you know, players like Walt Disney, as we all know, you know, he's he's passed on, but but a lot of other people had as well. So we were like, you know, who else could we contact and things like that? I think we even started contacting people before we even started officially putting this together. Um God bless them for some of these people for talking to us when we're like, hello, would you like to talk to us um, without officially having a book deal or anything like that? But um, but yeah, so it was it was certainly more. I mean, it really was like a passion project and, and very genuine for us because it wasn't like we were searching necessarily for a we weren't like searching for a book that we wanted to write. It was simply that we just became obsessed with this specific story. So kind of along those lines, what, um, you know, you talked about kind of the geographic connection and the notion that um, that there hadn't been much on this topic. I imagine as as journalists, you, you think about how, what, what are you bringing new to the table, right? Especially when you're thinking about how are you crystallizing all of this information that had been published across different sources, but you're trying to bring it together. What What was kind of your hope as you were, gathering some of this initial information. You mentioned the Denver Public Library, USC's archives, et cetera. What was kind of your intention as you were just uh, assembling all these initial uh, pieces of information? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think at the beginning it was really kind of like you said, it's like, okay, there's bits and pieces that have been told of this in various spots, but it's never kind of been all brought together in terms of the Disney side, the environmental side, the legal side, there were so many elements to it. And then I think, you know, that was probably our goal at first was just, let's just put all this information together in one place, you know, and make it an entertaining, hopefully engaging read. But then I think as then all that came together, we started to kind of synthesize and process it more and hopefully got into kind of larger issues about, you know, what did it mean, you know, for the Disney company, what did it mean for the environmental movement and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was definitely a process of just pulling a lot of pieces together. And then once, you know, almost like a puzzle. And then once the puzzle's together, looking at the whole picture that those pieces created and trying to sort of describe that in a, in a bigger way. Yeah. And adding on, of course, more information that wasn't available simply in reports and, and things like that, but, you know, through interviews and, and lots of other things like that as well. So were you conducting interviews after you had already processed a lot of the information or was that uh, in tandem? I would say it was in tandem, but I think we certainly like went back, certainly. And again, kind people that, <laughs> that, that talked to us, you know, numerous times and said, you know, one more, you know, other follow-up questions. Uh, so but yeah, that's a good question. It, it was definitely, I mean, it was definitely in tandem and then, you know, later on figuring out exactly some of the holes and things like that. Yeah, I think it took us a while to kind of get to what the book was really going to be. I mean, we hadn't written a book before, so we really, you know, it took us a while to really, a lot of trial and error as far as what is this going to look like? What, how is it going to be told? What are the chapters going to be? What, what's the information going to be? So Definitely once we sort of started to get that nailed down after, you know, months of trial and error, then I think we went back to some of those sources and said, okay, now we really know what the questions are we want to ask. So 
let's try, you know, maybe for just another round of, of interviews, that kind of thing. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I have, I have certainly a bunch of questions about the content. I find the process to be really fascinating because I feel like the selection of a publisher and ultimately, as you were just alluding to, Greg, in terms of figuring out what do we want the purpose of this book to be, thinking about audience and who, yeah. who the intended readership is. I, I might have my own ideas uh, based on having uh, read your book, but I'm curious in terms of who you envisioned the key audiences to be when you were first crafting it versus what you feel in its final product, uh, who who the targets might be. That's what a great question. I think, I mean, of course, at the, at the beginning, it was, oh, Disney fans would be interested in this. But of course, Disney fans, you know, had heard, I mean, not everybody. I mean, we actually have come across a lot of people who like Disney who have never heard about this. Um, and I and I think and hope certainly not to this, not to this scope. But then obviously digging into it, realizing that, okay, this it was so vital to the environmental movement at the time and having such an understanding and sympathy for that as we were writing as well, you know, you know, hopefully this is gonna appeal to them who are interested in protecting the environment, who maybe were around at that time, or you know, Sierra Club members, anything like that. And then even we had this whole last chapter of the book, which was kind of a surprise to us. I think we kind of randomly came upon it, but people could hopefully, you know, if they read the book, they'll, they'll find out. And we kind of talked about some of the lasting legacies that we kind of found out. And even on, it was, it, it had a major influence. The Mineral Cane Resort had a major influence on ski tourism and just recreation and just vacation destinations. And actually, we came across a contact at Vail Resort, which is, you know, the famous ski resort here in Colorado. Um, a guy who in the 1980s, then basically he was friends with then Disney president Frank Wells, but then basically essentially took a ton of the mineral cane ideas um, and used them and it became a massive success. So, you know, also the ski audience as well. So, I mean, our goal quickly, I wouldn't say maybe not quickly, but eventually when we realized we talked to people on the Disney side, we talked to people on the environmental side, we got, you know, information on both. And, you know, we eventually came to this realization, like, we need to tell this story from both sides. We want to make it narrative. We want people to be kind of in the thick of it. And we want to give essentially equal weight to Disney and to the environmental side. And so, yeah, that was really our motive going into it. I think that's kind of what changed a little bit, but again, and, and I think that's hopefully, you know, why when people read it, you know, they could be Disney fans or they could hate Disney and they could hopefully still enjoy the book. Well, a, and what, what I find fascinating about Mineral King and, and the topic is just the notion of it's a, a confluence of very passionate individuals like you're talking about the environmentalists who want to protect right. our natural land and then which and there's there's a lot of like warm feelings that are associated with that and then similarly what how people feel about disney and then th the clash that emerges if you will because of different interpretations of how you can use land and, and certainly in more recent decades disney's had a much more salient and positive role in terms of environmental efforts but um i i interpret it as a reader as though you both are demonstrating your role as journalists and that there's a, a good deal of ob objectivity and you're not necessarily favoring one side or another. You're just kind of presenting the facts and the narratives that were very prevalent at the time. 
Yeah, that's, I'm glad you, you feel that way. Cause yeah, that was, as Catherine said, that was important to us to be very objective and just tell, it was just a good story. I mean, the more we found out about the legal side of it, the environmental side of it, the Disney side, there was so many little fun facts and personalities and all these cameos by famous politicians and celebrities and things. And it just, you know, was it just a really good story to tell? And our real goal was just to, to tell it well and, and not really choose sides. I, I also loved um you, you mentioned uh Vail, Colorado. There was the 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 archival photograph, if you will, of Sport Goofy, yeah. which I had never seen before. Um because there's so there are so rarely instances of characters being featured outside of Disney official spaces. Um that was kind of a, a fun find there. Yeah, that was cool. That was actually a friend of ours who grew up in Vail yeah. and gave us that photo because we started talking to her about this. She's like, oh, I remember Sport Goofy. I used to see him all the time when I skied there. So that was like, <laughs> she's like, I think I even have a photo. So that's how we came across that photo. But yeah, that's definitely another one of those cool facts that like we certainly had never heard of Sport Goofy. Who knew? No kidding. Well, you know, you you all you mentioned how you conducted original interviews with folks who are connected to Mineral King. What I find really fascinating is when I talk with authors who are essentially speaking with folks who are in their 70s, 80s, older, and because this is this is history that you know goes back now more than 50 years. Right. And so how do you track folks down when um when it, it can be very difficult and, and they're perhaps like uh, not as publicly listed as as certain other professionals. Oh my goodness, that is a great question. I feel like now we we kind of look at each other and be like, how <laughs> did we find some of these people? Um, I don't know. Like sometimes we would talk, we would find one person. Sometimes we literally call cold call people. I mean, because they don't. You're right. These you know, a lot of these people didn't have like public emails and stuff. Um, there was a famous, one of the the main characters in the book, Mike McCloskey, who was the then head of the Sierra Club, still living. He was a great resource for us, was, was extremely kind with his time, um, you know, very famous in environmental circles. And how did we track him down? He had, he had published a memoir several years ago, and we just reached out to his publisher and said, you know, do you know how to get in touch with him? And then a day later, I think we got an email from him that said, I hear you want to talk to me about Mineral King. So, and then if, even a couple of cases or people would reach out to their kids or, you know, yeah. literally would say, was your father so-and-so? Like, it's, <laughs> based on where you live in your profession, it seems like you're probably related to this person. So, I mean, there was, yeah, a lot of kind of cold calling and just stabs in the dark, but we turned out to be accurate for most of them. So. And sometimes if we talk to someone, they would say, hey, you can also speak to so-and-so. I'm trying to think a couple of people on the, the Disney side was harder just because, again, obviously there was no Walt Disney. Um, there's no Card Walker. There's no, you know, things like that. Um, and I'm trying to think of how that, how that even happened. That was a couple other, like we talked to like Frank Stanek and Frank Allnut, who was a, who did the PR for Mineral King actually. Um, I think we just randomly found his name at some point in his website. I don't even know. God bless some of these people, I swear, because they've been really, really nice. So all this to say is to anyone listening, if someone randomly reach out, reaches out. out to you at some point and 
also is like, was your, was your dad so-and-so? They might not just be a weird person. It might also just be a author looking for a some information so so just just respond to them (laughs) I mean that's what that's the beautiful thing about just the world we live in 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 terms of that there's so many more mechanisms to get in touch with people and and you both using your sleuthing skills to be able to um to bring people to the conversation um I mean I I I I thoroughly enjoyed the book because I, I feel like not only is it intertwining you know the the confluence of of Disney history at the time, and also the environmental movement, but uh, political issues. We're learning about, you know, uh, different um, topics that were uh, very present in California. Like it's it, it's a lot of different uh, genres, if you felt, if, if if you will, all kind of filled into into one. And I guess I'm wondering how how you decided to integrate like little pieces of Disney history at the time that don't necessarily distract. The reader from the main focus on mineral king but provide the context right so at in the first chapter you, you talk about bambi in the true life adventure series and other um notable topics within the space of disney and nature just to kind of set the backdrop and you share stories and little biographies of different key figures at different points how, how do you, i mean this is a process question but how do you make sense of how you want to present that in a way that uh helps drive the narrative as opposed to distracts yeah, we, it was kind of a, a balancing act for sure. I mean, the Bambi, the True Life Adventures all seem so germane to the story. And then, you know, the 60s was such like a fertile time for Disney. And I mean, I, obviously other books have mentioned things like the World's Fair and Mary Poppins and of course, Disney World and all these other things that were happening. But we just really wanted to try to put it all in some context and really get at like where mineral King fit into the larger picture of what was going on. Mm. And then, yeah, with the people too, I guess, again, you know, it could, we could have easily just told it sort of in a dry way with a lot of facts and things like that, but we, we just really felt like trying to create characters and trying to really bring in the humanity of these people hopefully makes for a richer reading experience so that's really you know hopefully we didn't overdo it by giving long biographies of every person that we mentioned but there were just a few you know set like for someone like roy disney or card walker or people like that or some on the environmental side michael mccloskey and things it just seemed to really add to kind of the richer larger picture of this entire story to kind of bring those people to life some yeah and sometimes i mean it would make sense in, in the you know and we wouldn't realize this until we were you know researching this more and and finding the information, but, you know, the way that they had built Disneyland then later influenced how they thought about Mineral King and wanting to have, you know, extra land if they wanted and, and things like that. So it all kind of made a lot of sense. We briefly mentioned Celebrity Sports Center in, in Denver, which is, is another random, you know, Disney kind of theme, center um partly disney owned and that was another thing where we were like oh that was happening too but then we found out that they were also using they were planning to use that as training for employees of mineral king so it all kind of had this you know it it all made sense um and all really came together and you know that's what's always so interesting about the disney company is they're so strategic about so much um and i think maybe even 
then maybe more so than, than today when they have their hands in so many different things, but, but even, but back then, especially, I mean, we're seeing, you know, how everything really plays into to other things that they're doing. Yeah, everything is in, is interconnected. And um, you mentioned the Celebrity Sports Center. It was also used as a space to train Walt Disney World employees too, because yeah. it was just a, a huge uh, enterprise. What, what I found really fascinating, I mean, I had heard a little bit about Mineral King here and there over the years, um, obviously not in uh, such, such a concentrated manner. I, I was really struck by something that you mentioned in um, uh, some of the early chapters about how how would guests get up to the resort? And you mentioned the notion of Disney contemplating using the monorail system to take people up from the Kauai River Canyon up to the Scenic Valley. You mentioned the people mover potentially being employed. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about how Disney was thinking about utilizing some of its existing technology to serve the resort? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really interesting that we found. So, I mean, the, one of the people that we found actually who had written a lot about Mineral King back when it was happening was a guy named John Harper, who was a Sierra Club member and was very opposed to this development and really kind of spearheaded a lot of the opposition. But the the first that he heard about it was back in, I think, in 1962 or 63, when one of the rangers in the area mentioned to him that Disney was conducting a study on monorails in that area, which you know, if you think about a monorail going up through like a forest, it seems a little, it can be quite difficult to do. And I think Disney eventually realized that it would be difficult, but it is kind of funny that that was their first thought was monorail. And then even later on, there's a big controversy in the book about a road that would have had to be built through Sequoia National Park. This was one of the big sticking points for environmentalists. Mineral King was right next to the park and any road to service the amount of people they were talking about bringing in would have had to go through that park. And there's a point where Stuart Udall, the secretary of the interior was really pressing them to look into like electric railways and things like that. And then, yeah, then we found the mention of the people mover basically is what they created for the world's fair actually. And then they were going to spin it off there. That would have been this kind of transportation system where once people had parked in this underground garage, of course, hiding the cars from the beautiful landscape then they would kind of go on one of two tracks and one track would take day skiers right up to the the mountainside. And then if people were staying at the hotels, they would get on a different track and that would take them to their room where their bags and stuff would be waiting. So it was cool to see these little glimmers of other Disney technology that they wanted to use. Like you said, all that synergy they had between all the parts of what they were doing. There are such parallels to Walt's original plans for Epcot, the city, but the community in that way, in terms of the like transportation hubs, mm-hmm. where it would be like these different layers of transportation mechanisms for folks to branch out to different industries and neighborhoods and space uh, spaces. It's it's fascinating to see that because again, you talk about the 1960s as just this um, really concentrated time of a lot of activity. This was in many ways happening, or the the development of Mineral King, at least um, when Walt was still alive, was happening in concert with the plans for Epcot, the community. So it's fascinating to see um, those those consistent elements. Yeah, those. I mean, Walt's commitment to doing this kind of thing, and you know, keeping cars off roads and trying to find alternative methods of transportation and stuff wasn't any sort of a gimmick or, you know, I mean, it was genuine. That was one of the the neatest things we found is that his desire for all this stuff was really 
pure and he was really excited about using alternative technology and he was excited about a place that would have no cars allowed and that would like celebrate natural beauty and stuff like that so the the finding out just how genuine his passion for it was really made it you know that side of the story all, all the richer for that and needless to say with walt's passing as has been chronicled in many spaces created so much disruption for the company in terms of having central vision um across so many of its businesses but um there were there, there were there was resistance prior to walt's passing as you mentioned but um, one of the quotes that really stands out for me from your book is, quote, uh, in terms of the notion of Disney um, having presence in Mineral King was, quote, like Mickey Mouse and Mineral King were akin to oil and water. They were simply two different consistencies that weren't meant to mix. Instead, they formed different layers, different ideas that would never blend, end quote. So it makes me wonder, you know, and I I mean, I, I have, I feel like a, a bit of a better understanding having read the book, but for listeners who are perhaps getting more acquainted. Why is it, uh, per your quote, that so many doubted what Disney could offer in terms of having a, a resort presence in this natural space? Yeah, and again, I mean, I think it's important to note that that's, you know, the naysayers. There are people, of course, who, who were excited about it, but I think, my gosh, it was such an interesting time. And I think that was, I think that was, when we talk about it ourselves, I almost feel like that was the biggest obstacle. It was, I mean, there was a number of different things, but it was really the timing of this. We're talking about the 1960s, the 1970s. There's a lot of movement um, as far as kind of anti-development pro-environment. And I think it's, you know, it's not, it wasn't Disney's fault. It wasn't, you know, in, in Walt, especially like Greg was saying, it was, he was doing this in a very genuine way. I mean, from our point of view, he, he really cared about nature. He cared about wildlife and he was really excited about this. I mean, arguably just as excited, maybe even more so than, than any of these theme parks. Um, but I think that this area in Mineral King was, it wasn't not developed because there, there wasn't infrastructure there, which is important to note. There were about 60, some, a little bit less than 70 cabins. There was a post office. There was a general store and things like that. But I mean, obviously putting in numerous different hotels, putting in restaurants, putting in, you know, a movie theater, like they were planning tons of ski lifts, um, that was going to change the game, obviously, a great deal. There was going to be thousands of people that came there every day. And another thing, one of the things, one of the sticking points, I think, was that Walt at one point had said, like he said about Walt Disney World and Disneyland, he said, this is not going to be finished. You know, we're always going to be, you know, moving forward. We're always going to be having different ideas. And that also became kind of a rallying cry against this. Like he says he's just going to do this for now, but just wait, it's going to be even bigger and more ridiculous, you know, than, than what he's saying. I think that's part of it. Um, and again, Mineral King too was right next to, at the time it was right next to Sequoia National Park. And a lot of people had felt that that area should be in Sequoia National Park. And 
they had to build this road as well. And that was a, that was a main sticking point as well is because they basically had to construct this all weather highway to replace this very primitive, narrow, slightly dangerous road that went into Mineral Cane. It would actually cut through the park. So it, it was certainly a combination, a combination of things, but I mean, I think the the biggest strike against it was was the time and just a lot of activism. And Disney's not, I don't think Disney kind of has the same negative connotation. You know how some people kind of think about Disneyfying things and um, they don't like that necessarily. And I think we kind of, a lot of people have that attitude, especially today. I don't think it was anything like it is today back then, um, but certainly, you know, it's kind of, people think it's kind of like a cheesy situation. It's, you know, the amusement park, it has Mickey Mouse. It doesn't, you know, doesn't belong in the mountains. And that was, that was a big argument against it. Well, and uh, I think what what's also worth noting is that fingers were pointed in all directions as your, <laughs> as your uh, yes. book notes, I mean, uh, toward the Forest Service, toward um, politicians toward the Sierra Club. I, I mean, everybody's just saying like, why, why have this there? And and Disney wasn't the only, I mean, I think what's worth knowing, Disney is not the only entity that wanted to, to have a resort here. You mentioned actress Janet Lee from Psycho yeah. was one of the potential main contenders here. So a lot of different, um, uh, folks with privilege and, and power wanted to have a stake in this, but yeah. D- Disney ultimately was the, the one that in some ways prevailed, but then also fell down too. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was interesting. Um, Janet Lee in particular, and her husband, Robert Brandt, you know, and, and the thing with this whole resort is to the, to your point is this, this was on national forest land and the forest service put this area up for bid to be a ski area. It wasn't like Walt just, waltzed into the most beautiful <laughs> mountain spot in California and said, I'm putting a ski resort yeah. here, darn it. I mean, this was, this was the forest service got the ball rolling on this and said, we have this land. It's perfect for skiing. We invite anyone who has the means and the money and the experience to bid to do this. So there were six bidders all in total and Walt and Robert Brand and Janet Lee among them. And Walt ended up of course, winning the rights to do this, but it was you know, it was a government initiative, really. There was a point too. Um, there's there was one character that we talk about a lot in the book. Her name is Jean Coke, and she was a cabin owner, and she was the one that donated all of these materials and hundreds, thousands, I think, of artifacts and letters that she wrote. So she was anti the development because she had a cabin there. Of course, she didn't want this to happen. But in the hundreds of letters that we um, read that she had written, she said many times she actually didn't fault the Disney company. She said that she faulted the government most of all. She thought Disney was, you know, I think she used the term naive in, in certain ways, thinking that they could and should do this. But she she said many times that she did not blame Disney, which was interesting. Disney's going to Disney, you know. <laughs> I also like uh, what what you said a few moments ago, Greg Walton, just Waltz and Walt Waltz. And, <laughs> yeah. I, I think yeah, it's just a fun play on words, but yeah, I mean, and, and I think the scale and magnitude of this project is just what was so fascinating about it in terms of, you know, how much 
I mean, we, we talk about Disney's impact in Florida, but this, I mean, this would have brought so much tourism um, to the Mineral King Valley and would have really changed the, the whole infrastructure there. Um, but, you know, I feel like each chapter of the, of the book focuses on a, a different, uh, progressively a different time period. And I felt like one um, turning point of many was that awful 1969 snowstorm that further derailed the resort. De mm -hmm. derailed the potential of the resort and people thinking, oh, is this the, the best space for uh, for building a, a new place? There, there were a number of different uh, events that, that seemed to unfold that were like, uh, maybe this isn't the best idea. Yeah. How did you make sense of that? Yeah, that was, again, and one of those finds and something that we hadn't seen, you know, in any Walt biography or anything like that. Another one of those newspaper article deep dives, essentially, this was a month after they had submitted their final master plan. So they, you know, Walt won the right to do this in 1965. They had about three years to put together their plan and then submit their final plan to the Forest Service. And once that's approved, then they're good to go. And about a month after they submitted that final plan in February of 69, there was a horrible snowstorm that caused an avalanche. And there were Disney employees working up in Mineral King, most winters that were, you know, taking snow measurements and starting to plan lifts and doing all kinds of research for the eventual resort. And there were a few Disney employees in the area at that time and a couple of their friends. And one of the friends that was there was actually killed in this avalanche. So it was really a tragic thing. And, you know, it's, it was right after Disney in their final master plan had sort of noted, oh, we can control snow. You know, they basically said something to the effect of, you know, the snow moves when we tell when we tell it to kind of thing and sort of touting how how avalanche safe their plan was. And then this happens and was really, you know, that's one of the things that the Sierra Club kind of seized on when they started to look into legal remedies for this. And one of the points in their lawsuit was that avalanche studies obviously had sort of not been mm -hmm. adequately done. So, yeah, it was a pretty tragic moment for that whole project. Yeah, well, and, and a good deal of the, the latter part of the book focuses on on the lawsuit, which ultimately manifest uh or it grows to the supreme court level but i love initially uh a a quote that you use from a sierra club member in terms of who to um who's who to name in the lawsuit and you say uh you use the quote from the participant uh or from the sierra club member to sue disney would be like suing the motherhood the flag and the boy scouts all at once yeah. <laughs> and instead the efforts were focused on government officials and major offices and, and entities like the national park service um this is just an absolutely fascinating um, portion in terms of like how significant this endeavor became in terms of trying to to shut this down and it becoming the Sierra Club versus Morton, this 1972 case. Like, mm. really, I mean, this, this is major implications. Yeah, it was crazy to think that a Disney development, you know, ended up in front of the Supreme Court, whether, you know, of course, Disney, like you said, they were not named in the suit, um, which was fascinating on its own. You know, we talked to, like we said, you know, one of our main sources was Mike Bukowski and, and he talked about, about that logic, you know, it was a very beloved company. We didn't really want to like, it was already kind of a long shot that the Supreme Court took this on, that they were getting all this momentum. They were like, 
we're not going to also shoot ourselves in the foot by, by naming Disney. And then everyone kind of turns against us who are Disney fans. So it was really interesting. So yeah, this, the, the legal case itself was extremely fascinating. It was, you know, it was a number of things that they, they eventually basically sued for, they found legal reasons that they said that they shouldn't, this shouldn't be built. It was, it was the road that, that was mentioned. It was the number of acres. It was, a number of different things. Oh, the, av- the avalanches, um, a lot of which we obviously have talked about. So, you know, there's, there's kind of a laundry list of reasons that they had found and, um, and they, they lost in the, the, you know, the lower courts and they thought, Hey, let's, let's try to throw this at the Supreme court, see if they take it. And to a lot of people's kind of shock, they, they got it in front of the Supreme court. And it was something like less than 5% of cases at that time was, um, agreed to, to be listened to by the, by the high court. And of course this was one of them. And I think a lot of the reasons and, and from people we talked to as well, of course, you know, again, it was kind of a sign of how important the environmental movement at that time was and talking about, you know, should we develop an area like this or should we not? I think it was, it was also kind of a symbol of, of the importance of that time. Well, and what's really uh, interesting too, the Sierra Club lost um, yeah. after a 4-3 vote, um, but then they were, uh, they realized, oh, you know, they could amend the complaint in the district court but it, it seems like, at least my interpretation, I love some um, clarity or context from you all, what really was the nail in the coffin was the National Parks and Recreation Act. Mm-hmm. Is, that a, is that a fair uh, interpretation? Yeah, I mean, that came maybe about five or six years after that Supreme Court. Right. Thing. Yeah, that was the final nail in the coffin. The, the court, yeah, it is interesting because, you know, coming in the story, knowing what we knew, okay, there's not, there's one to the Supreme Court. We know that a Disney resort doesn't exist in California. So therefore <laughs> they must have won the case. Right. But as you said, they didn't, you know, the, the court ruled in favor of the resort going forward. So all the things that happened after that, including also the, the uh, national environmental policy act that required these environmental impact statements to be written that really hung it up for a few years as well. So it was like kind of after the Supreme court decision, even though, the Supreme Court said, you know, you can go ahead and build it. Of course, once the Sierra Club refiled their lawsuit, then everything's in limbo again. Now they got to do an environmental impact statement. It's in more limbo. But yeah, and then by the time that that uh, the National Parks and Recreation Act happened in 1978, I mean, it was, you know, more or less it had already been pretty inactive for a while but that was like you said that really was the final nail on the coffin for sure. But even after the case um, you know, was ruled, I think it got, you know, I'm sure I think part of it was that it got momentum, you know, it got people's attention as far as, you know, having an opinion on this Mineral King decision and, and, and wanting, and people were saying, hey, I agree, like this shouldn't be developed. And then suddenly we saw a lot of different protests that were happening. Um, even after the Supreme Court case, we saw a protest on Disneyland, which was really fascinating. We saw other hike-ins and, and there was this, there were protesters outside of Disney shareholder um, uh, meetings and stuff like that. And so even though 
you know, we're talking about after all this legal battle, then Disney is saying, oh my God, this is still going on, you know? And so it was a a big headache, obviously. It's just such a fascinating chronology. Like I I felt like if without really much context that everything really just died in the early seventies, but this really was, was drawn out for so long. And what so many of us as Disney connoisseurs and historians appreciate is good ideas never die. And that's mm-hmm. where the the end of the book, I think, is a, a nice illustration of how uh, aspects and and aspects of Mineral King and and ways in which Disney hoped to create that type of destination ultimately manifest manifested across other spaces. Can you share a little bit about how it lives on in a variety of ways? The yeah, I mean, you know, we can see looking at the plans and just what they had in mind. I mean, it obviously lives on just in the ski business with the way that resorts are now, you know, essentially what Walt wanted to do then, which, you know, family friendly year round, all sorts of shopping, dining, like a pure escape. But then, you know, within Disney as well, it's like you look at something like the Grand California Hotel in California or even like the Redwood Challenge Park in California Adventure to us really is like this really looks like maybe this could have been in Mineral King, you know, and this, you know, and they have so many hotels. Even there's a Sequoia Lodge at Disneyland Paris. There's the Animal Kingdom Lodge. There's just a lot. It's interesting how many properties they have that really seem to kind of channel this wilderness national park sort of vibe and you know we don't we can't say that it all came directly out of mineral king planning or anything but it's interesting to see those echoes in a lot of that design and the country bear jamboree which was envisioned for the lodge yes exactly that was a fun i mean i think people that's the one i feel like i had you know that's kind of the the lore the people the disney fans know about but that was definitely a fun to fun to hear about that that was um intended for mineral king and that was you know when walt had said many times that he wanted to keep this area mostly you know really about the beauty and understanding nature. There was going to be wilderness, you know, talks and walks and education was happening. And then when they started thinking about it, he was like, you know what, I think we need a little bit of fun entertainment, which was, which was interesting. So, you know, that was obviously the first thing. Um, And, and, and who knows what would have, you know, what else might have appeared there too, if, if the country bear jamboree was, was going to end up there. Um, I assume that other things probably might have made its way into into that Mineral King Resort that are kind of more Disneyland-esque. Well, and and that kind of, I think, alludes to this uh, very common question, like what would have happened if Walt hadn't passed and how how may have the plans evolved? What would his involvement uh, have looked like? So it makes me kind of pose this question to you all as we as we maybe start to wrap up. Should Disney have actually been successful in building a resort at Mineral King uh, in the, you know, let's say in the timeline of the 70s, really, mid-70s? Yeah. How do you envision it would have actually fared over the decades regarding public interest and within Disney's portfolio of resort destinations? So maybe just more of your, your interpretations of how you engaged with both uh, the secondary material, but also this original content you you gathered. What what do you think it could have been? I mean, I I can't imagine that it would not have been a massive 
success. I think that they were, as usual, ahead of their time in in what they were trying to build. And we see kind of, you know, year round ski destinations that have become massively successful. But if you put Disney in charge of it, I think it would have been a big success and it would have brought, you know, I mean, I think there's always that question of to, to build something is also to make it accessible because this Mineral King um, area, while beautiful, it's difficult to get to, you know, and this would have made a lot of people enjoy it more and, and, and easily, and easily get there. Um, but, you know, this would have been in between, you know, if it had gone according to plan, it would have been sandwiched in between Disneyland and Walt Disney World. And I feel like it would have been a big hit. I think it would have changed changed the way we think about recreation. And, um, you know, we, we, we say it's a ski resort, but I think it was going to be a lot bigger than, than that. It was going to be much, you know, much different than that too. And attract people who didn't just ski and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it would have been really, really super interesting to, to see. I mean, look at what Disney has done with, you know, their cruise line, you know, we didn't, that was seemed in some ways kind of a shot in the dark. We didn't know, you know, how that would turn out. Obviously it has become a massive hit. And I think, you know, when you kind of think about their vacation portfolio, which, you know, the theme parks obviously being the bread and butter still of this company, I think this probably would have been a slam dunk. I mean, it kind of almost makes sense that they would, they would have had this in their portfolio. Agreed. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, and, and when you mentioned Walt, I mean, I think, you know, had he not died right really about a year after this all started, I mean, his creativity and everything would have come into play more, you know, like Catherine said, again, this is 1965. So this is just 10 years after Disneyland opened and kind of the sky was the limit. They had all this great technology from the world's fair and Florida project was really just, just beginning. So I mean, they could have channeled a lot of that energy there. And we also feel like Walt would have maybe been able to work on the environmental concerns in a little more of a genuine way. You know, this is a guy that was actually, as we found in our research was lauded by environmental groups that had an honorary lifetime membership to the Sierra Club of all places that he had gotten 10 years earlier. So, you know, he spoke this language and he very well might have been able to sit down and had the interest to sit down and not just thought, you know, he wasn't really aware of the resistance that had it was really starting started. It was starting a little. But, you know, it certainly hadn't grown to where it was. Mm-hmm. But I think he would have been interested and not just thought, you know, not that anyone necessarily thought, oh, we're Disney, we can do whatever we want, especially not at that time. But I just think Walt would have maybe had a more genuine desire to say, let's hear what these people have to say. Let's see if we can work with them on these concerns and maybe we can still make this happen. What yeah. do you think, Brett? Do you think that yeah. this would have been successful? You know, it's it's a great question. You, you mentioned in the book um, briefly about other projects that Disney was entertaining outside of California and Florida, like Riverfront Square in St. Louis and some of these other spaces. And I feel like it's it's hard to know with like in this yeah. day and age, you're, you, you mentioned, Catherine, a few minutes ago, Disney Cruise Line. That was, un- I mean, the, the popular line they use, like uncharted waters, like they tested out mm-hmm. with the little red boat, like they, and then they figure out, oh, you know, we can make this its own business. I feel like we see elements of this with 
um, the Disney Vacation Club, right? Building the resort in Hawaii or even having uh, Hilton Head in Vero Beach, like these these non-theme park destinations, right. but where there's still a Disney presence. I feel like this could have been the origin of that portfolio, if you will. But um, it, it's it's I think it really would have set a template for what all of the subsequent major resort destinations would have been like. But again, it, it all comes down to what was the what was the level of tourism going to be like? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and access, right? Airports, roads, the highway, obviously, that you mentioned as would it, that would have been one of the pillars here. Yeah. It's fascinating. Really? Um, what, what's your takeaway on the other side of having written this book? Now it's published. Now folks can engage with it. What uh, n- no longer being entrenched with all the materials and countless letters and interviews. What, okay. What's your ta- what's your takeaway in, in having um, developed such a, a, a fascinating and, and well-needed endeavor? I mean, the biggest takeaway I think what we said is just that we hope we told a good story. We hope that it's engaging to people that they'll, you know, read it and come away with a lot of information, but also hopefully feeling like they had a good reading experience and a lot of these characters and things came to life and just getting a sense, you know, again, we know about the tenacity of Disney and we know that, you know, they undergo challenges from time to time and they have projects that fail. But I think this one is particularly interesting and sort of how long they kept working on it. I mean, I think the common wisdom is, oh yeah, Disney tried this. It didn't really work out. They kind of just walked away from it. You read a lot about Mineral King, Disney walked away. But as you find in the book, that really isn't the case. Even after that 1978 act, Card Walker wrote kind of an angry letter to Jimmy Carter saying, hey, we spent years on this, tons of money, risked our reputation. Like, how dare you sort of just let this act come across that that takes it away? So I think, you know, a lot of interesting Disney history to be learned and just a lot of neat insights about the company itself. What do you think? Yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I definitely, you know, we just hope that we... Yeah, that we told a good story and that we we tell it in a way that people, you know, even if they think that they know some of it, you know, hopefully I don't think they know all of this um, unless they did years and years of yeah. research like we did. <laughs> so hopefully not. But um, but yeah, and I and I hope they come away with with an understanding of both sides of it, too. I think that's another important part like we we've talked about because it's just you know, I mean, it's good to have the perspective of both. And I think, um, I think it was important. Um, and it's, you know, it's really kind of changed the Disney trajectory has changed the environmental trajectory. So it's, it's good to have that understanding, I think. Yeah, very holistic, to be sure. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you some Disney related uh, opinion questions. All right. For you. Right. Start off with some, uh, some music questions. Okay. Um, so, uh, Catherine, if maybe you want to go first and then Greg and we can switch sure. it up. Um, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Probably definitely. I mean, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin were the two were kind of, I was a late, you know, I was born in the, in the eighties. So, you know, in the, in the late early, the later eighties, early nineties was kind of my, coming of age for sure so it was definitely beauty and the beast and i would say aladdin Ooh, and the little mermaid <sighs> it was all of that it was definitely the resurgence of the uh of that and beauty and the beast to the to 
to this day is still my favorite Disney film. I'm a, a bit older than Catherine, but it, the, the one record I remember having was actually Winnie the Pooh. So I remember having like the wow. LP, you know, wonderful <laughs> thing about Tiggers and Blustery Day mm -hmm. and all those listening to that record over and over. So that that's the one that sticks out for me. And then if I were to think of a tie in there, Greg, well, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh attraction is in Critter Country in Disneyland, which is kind yeah. of in the same vein as Mineral Kingdom. King. It all, it all you didn't plan that at all. Yes. It all goes back to Mineral King. Yes. Uh, Greg, we'll start you off at the next one. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Oh, boy. Um, The one from Moana that's... Uh... <laughs> You're welcome. No. How far I'll go? No. no. The one that Lynn manuel Miranda sings. I can't think of what it's called. Oh, uh, the, the We'll Find the Way? Yeah, um, whatever that one is. Um, yeah, that's the one that is, is, that one's always in my head for some reason. I don't know why. The melody of that is great, and I, I love the lyrics, too. So that's what I have. How you, Catherine? Ooh, more recently. Ooh. Um... I have, I feel like I constantly have the, the Monsters, Inc., like, <laughs> instrumental. Oh, yes. Um, in my, I don't know, like a little soundtrack of my life, like, just kind of walking around. Um, oh, I don't know. I think we also, <laughs> we also spent time recently at the, in um, Disney's California Adventure, which I loved, but um, they have that that Monsters, Inc., like Mike and Soli's Rescue, what is it called? Monsters um, to the Rescue. Yeah. So I I always enjoy that. Yeah, That's I mean, probably that's, not it's... what I would have thought I was going to ask <laughs> or answer, but that that popped into my mind, as it often does. And so we have, we know the way and the Monsters, Inc. theme by Randy. Yeah. Like yeah. That. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay, Catherine, uh, here's your your next question what disney film do you feel has the most underrated music underrated oh, that's i mean i love lady and the tramp i wouldn't say it's underrated though underrated music though the well i know music. i mean the music because i'm like a peggy lee type person mm. like i yeah but that's not i wouldn't say that's underrated but i kind of feel like slightly underrated when we're thinking of like Cinderella, Snow White, some of the older classics, and then, you know, some of the newer music we're talking about. Yeah. I don't know if I would 100% say it's underrated, but um, but I do love that, the music, because I think it's beautiful. That's a good question. I would say, I mean, I love, I think 101 Dalmatians has great instrumental music sort of the jazzy kind of music of the time. And then I know Catherine just mentioned Monsters, Inc., but I feel like the Monsters movies also have really great instrumental. And when you're in the queue for Mike and Sully, like we just were, I don't know if that's all music from the film, but it has that same feel. And it's great. It's so like, I don't know even what you call it. It's almost like kind of 20s, 30s jazzy sort of. It's just not like really fun. So those would be my my first to come to mind answers. Do you have an yeah, answer? Yeah, Brad, we got to hear your focus on Oh, oh darn. Um, I'm sure I've I'm sure I've had where previous guests have turned the tables on me with that. And <laughs> generally what I would say, and I've said it before, I believe, is Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm -hmm. um, which like is has a fantastic score by Alan Menken and the, the songs, the lyrics are by um, Stephen Schwartz. 
um, of wicked fame among others. Um, Yeah. I mean, I do, I see, I love monsters Inc. score, but I'm not sure if I'd say um, it did get an Oscar nomination if I'm not mistaken. Oh, well, there you go. Not on your But, but I don't think people like listen to it enough. Like Like, think think about, yeah. 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 So I agree with you. Pulling out the record. Yeah, it's I mean, that's shit. a fantastic score by Randy. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, a couple of book questions for you, and then one random question, and then we'll wrap up with how listeners can check out the book and follow you both. So, a couple of book questions. Um, Catherine, let's start with you. Um, what is the most recent Disney-related book that you've read? It could be nonfiction. It could be fiction. It could be adjacent to Disney, like Star Wars or Marvel or anything like that? Um, I'm actually in the middle of reading the Kingdom Keepers series. Have you read those? I've, I've, uh, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I read them like a while. I mean, obviously, yeah, many years ago. And then I was, I don't know why I just thought that would be a fun kind of, especially around like kind of like fall spooky, you know, um, so I was reading that, a, a nonfiction Disney book that I, that I, not sometime last year, I believe that I read and loved was the Queens of Animation, which is by Natalia Holt. I don't know if you've been familiar, if you're familiar with that book, but, um, but so she talks about, yeah, all the, the, the women behind uh, the Disney films and the Disney theme parks and things like that. So a really, really good read. Nice. How yeah. about for you, Greg? I think, well, I mean, for the book, for the Mineral King book, yeah. definitely looked at the Bob Thomas Disney biography, which was, you know, a really good one, um, full of great information. And then actually one of um, another, one of our readers for our book that we connected with early on with this was Jake Friedman, who wrote the book, The Disney Revolt, mm-hmm. about the strike back in the 40s. Um, so I'm about halfway through that one right now. And it's just super interesting, like how, you know, we take sort of this 20 year battle into a book, but he takes really this kind of more microcosm of something that happened in, in a shorter time at Disney and really just blows it out from all, all angles. And it's really, really well done. That's great to hear. Um, the other question. Um, okay, so you said this was your first book. So if you could write a Disney book, a second Disney book on any topic, Although maybe you don't want to share your secrets or what's it rumbling inside, <laughs> but what would it be? Um, Greg, we'll start with you for this one. Boy, I think something, I mean, I, I'm a, a music fan and a very amateur musician. I think something on music would be really cool. I don't know what exactly, but almost something where, I don't know if it would be like a deep dive into the music of one particular film or maybe a look at some of the lesser known songs or composers, but I feel like there's such, there's such rich richness with music that, um, you know, has definitely has been explored to some degree in other books and other things, movies and stuff. But I just feel like there's a, a other great books to be written about Disney music. Monsters Inc. music. Monsters Inc. That's it. <laughs> that's our next book. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, for me, I mean, I'm always kind of like a theme park person. For I mean, that's kind of so maybe something on. Is there something on Walt Disney on like the making of Walt Disney World? I feel like there's. Oh yes. I, there's, I mean, I know there's some, and I feel like Disneyland has had the bulk of them more than Disney World. Um, 
I'm like such a Hollywood studios fan. I know that's like very niche, but it's also like in the Mike Eisner era and, um, yeah, something about Hollywood studios slash MGM. Cause also, cause you know, cause a lot of what they were, you know, the, 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 the shows that were filmed there at the time and, and being created and, and drawn and things like that. Um, that kind of piques my interest. Mm, I like that. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, Catherine, we'll start with you. So this is a random question that I mix up with every guest. The, the, okay. the ones earlier were standard. Okay. So if you could build a Disney resort hotel in a destination in the United States where they do not have the presence where would you place it and what would the theme be? Should I or, say should I say mineral <laughs> California? Just <laughs> how about that? Um, just so we can see what this looks like. I'll say, uh, I mean, we're in Colorado, so just convenience for us, I would say some kind of a Colorado resort. Um, a ski resort, maybe. Even though we're actually Fun fact about us, we're not skiers, by the way. <laughs> Even though we wrote this, um, we don't really ski. So yeah, some kind of a destination that has a lot of a lot of things that are that are not um, you know, that is like a ski thing in Colorado, but is but is has a lot more than just skiing. So basically Mineral King is what I want to say. <laughs> Mineral King, but in Colorado. But in Colorado. Yeah. That's such a good question. I, I know. I could see something like almost in New York, like kind of high end, sort of like with like the old Hollywood glamour type feel, like the like Central Park. I don't even know how I <laughs> where I'm going with this, but kind of sounds like California. Well, I know I was gonna say like old Hollywood, but then they have a presence in California. So New York, maybe uh maybe a casino. <laughs> Disney, Disney Casino in Nevada. Debauchery. That could be cool. And it'd be Scrooge McDuck as the mascot. Yeah, exactly. Yes. You can see it. I could totally I see like it, it. I feel like you have a good answer for this. Oh, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I probably have a million answers. I mean, I appreciate you inviting me to participate, but I, I don't have an answer. Have you been to Disneyland Paris by chance? I have. She has. Yes. You have. So there, you're familiar with, um, you mentioned the Sequoia Lodge earlier. I, I went there for the first time uh, back in May and it was fantastic. But now with the, the New York, they have the art of Marvel, the Hotel New York. So That's it's right. the yeah. Marvel influence, which is very tasteful. And I think it's in line with what you were saying there, Greg, a few minutes ago. But oh, that's they, right. Yeah. But, but they don't have, but the thing is, is that it's, um, it's a, it's a very art deco, uh, artistic vision of new york as opposed to the reality which i think yeah. like yeah i shouldn't say gotham city because that's like dc but that yeah almost like the incredibles or something like that that kind of vibe oh i, I like could, that i could see like a broadway because of all the music oh. what about some kind of a broadway resort that's in new york with the built-in theater the built-in theater sure that'd be, yeah that would be like smart. A cruise ship on the on the land oh <laughs> Okay, so then we'll have to talk about dining venues. We're we're going down different directions. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> you both like, have, your your full time jobs are writers and journalists, but I think you can also add hotel developers to the Thank you. There you go. I, yeah, I guess that's what we're trying to do. That's that's the next goal. Now that you say it, we've never had this goal until you just said it. But Fair now enough. the new life, the new 
lifetime goal for sure. <laughs> you're, you're pivoting a little bit. Um, yes. <laughs> let, let's let's make sure we know where listeners can uh, pick up a copy of the book and where they can find you both, um, your your other work, your your social media presence. Feel free to share whatever you'd like. Yeah, so we do have a website. Um, it is called DisneylandOnTheMountain.com. So it's obviously a lot about our book, and it does have links to where you can find the book and um, and buy it. So of course, you know any any online presence that you can think of, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop, things like that. It's available. So um, so yeah, please please uh, please read it. We'd love to hear from you and. Um, and, and our website also has information on, you know, reaching out to us. It has our social media handles and things like that and a contact form. So please shoot us a message if you have any questions or if you'd like to, you know, talk about the book or, you know, want to tell us which side you were on or want to tell us what Disney resort you would like to see Yeah, <laughs> as we, the three of us start our own company <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as developers. Fair enough. Greg, <laughs> Catherine, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you both today. Thank you uh, for joining me, but also thank you for adding another worthy addition to our Disney bookshelves. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was so you. fun. Yeah, your questions were great. It was great talking with you. Much appreciated. And thank you again to Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer for joining me on Notably Disney to talk about Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt the Environmentalist's and the ski resort that never was. Clearly they had many fascinating insights to share and if you want to read about it in a ton of depth, I would certainly recommend you to check out their new title, which as mentioned can be found on Amazon, Barnes Noble, uh, various retailers. Uh, it's a just an absolutely fascinating read that unites so many different topics from politics to history to uh, tourism, environmentalism, and everything in between. Uh, I, I, I think you'll find it to be a really valuable resource in understanding this really pivotal time in Disney history in terms of its uh, exploration of having outlets beyond the traditional theme park or beyond its film division. Well, this would have been incredible. Mineral King may not have come to fruition uh, in the ways that folks had hoped or imagined, but certainly uh, many takeaways live on in terms of other Disney spaces and other ski resorts that model some of the characteristics and priorities. So thank you again, Greg and Catherine, for joining me. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett. And thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.